Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. We're here on day two of the Weekend with Wood, and we've found Hunter. Hunter, where are you from? Uh, Walnut Creek, California. What do you do? I am a woodshop teacher, high school. Excellent. That's that's very cool. A, a dying art, I think, or yeah, maybe not. Are you are you helping bring it back? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm still kind of early in the career, but um, you know, there there's certainly some folks trying to bring it back and in, into uh, in, into the new technologies and and moving forward, getting getting people in, interested. Excellent. So we'll get right into the questions here with you. Um, first one. How did you get into woodworking? Um, I, I became a woodshop teacher. Um, <laughs> I, I started off as a as a art teacher when I got my first got my credential, and then a um, uh, couple years bounced around from job to job, and then um, there was an opening for a, a woodshop, and um, my principal at the time saw something in me and hired me, and um, I kind of had to learn a lot on the job. Um, wasn't really sure about it at first, but, you know, found a, the larger community and really fell in love with it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still new, still relatively new at it, still, still young, but, um, you know, it, I'd, I'd say it's a bit of a calling. Oh, so excellent. I'm, I'm here now. Yeah. Glad you found it. Glad yeah. you came here. Uh, what is your favorite tool? Um, one that works. <laughs> um, without without too much fuss, um, uh, it, that's a tough question. It's kind of like asking, you know, who do you love more, your mother or your father? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at, at the shop, we've got our traditional tools. We've got our table saw and band saw. Um, I, I love turning pens on a lathe. Okay. Um, uh, recently, we were lucky enough to acquire um, this year a, a CNC router, which has been a lot of fun. Very cool. Um, and also a, a laser engraver and cutter. Um, so it, those are probably a little more high tech than than most traditional woodworkers are going to use. But I mean, there's there's just the cool factor of sure. of watching photons burn a hole in a piece of wood. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, can I ask what, what kind of a route, CNC router you have? and uh, Brand and everything? Yeah, I mean, just um, curious. We got a uh, CNC Shark 3. Okay. Um, the, I forget, it's not the long bed, it's the, um, it's the, the regular size bed. Um, Which is like, what, two, two foot by something? Or? Yeah, something like that. I, we've got about, uh, I want to say around a, either 20-inch or 24-inch square um, capacity on that okay. on, uh, travel yeah. um, for, the, uh, for the cam or the, the gantry. Yeah. Gantry. Proper yeah. name. It's, okay. <laughs> and what kind of laser engraver? Uh, we went with the Epilogue, um, the Epilogue Mini 18. Okay. So that's got a, a 12 by 18 bed. Um, okay. And... Uh, it, it, it's it's just fantastic. The, cool. the customer service was really good with, and that was really kind of the um, the deciding factor. We wanted to go with something that was going to last, and you know, if anything went wrong with it, we'd have somebody to yell at. And, um, you know, it's 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 in a shop with a bunch of kids, so it's got to be it's got to be something that you know is durable and and we want to use for a long time. Oh, excellent! So, 
who has influenced you the most and will say in your woodworking, which could um, be a teaching thing, actually? Um, I, I always tell my kids I, I learn pretty much everything, most everything I need to know about woodworking from YouTube. <laughs> That's fair. Um, it's there's just so many great resources, and now there's there's some fantastic um, personalities out there um, who just make woodworking fun and accessible. Um, specifically, I've been following uh, Steve Ramsey's uh, Woodworking from Immortals mm-hmm. channel. Um, that that's kind of where I started. Um, I know he's up in the, the North Bay area. I'm I'm over in the the East Bay. Um, uh, Peter Brown's channel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, there's a couple others out there. I, I'm blanking off the top of my head, but you know, no less influential. Um, but uh, we actually watch um, Woodworking for Mere Mortals um, just about every week in my uh, in my classes. We throw it up on the screen and and watch the whatever video came out last week. And you know, the, I, I get some kids coming in, you know, asking, "Did you, did you see the video last? Did you oh, see the last cool. video? Oh, it was about this. Oh, I watched this. I watched this other one. Can we watch this one?" Um, so they really get into it, and it, and they really make it accessible for uh, for all kinds of people. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what was your biggest stumbling block, and could you have avoided it? Um, I think my biggest stumbling block is just organization. Um, it it's just I I've never been a, a great at um, you know keeping things clean and organized. I, I know there's a lot of folks out there who fall into that category of you know you you use a tool, you set it down wherever, and then you know, you're, you spend 10 minutes looking for that tool you just put down. And, um, it's, uh, that seems to be kind of a common, common issue. But when you're teaching, um, organization just makes the job go a lot faster. And, and so, you know, finding that, that balance and that discipline of, okay, you, you have to keep things organized and, um, you know, keep track of student work and, and, um, papers and deadlines and, and all that stuff that's, it, it's really, I mean, I've never worked in the in the private sector, but um, you know, it's. I imagine it's very similar to you know meeting all sorts of production deadlines, and and there, there's a lot of demands on your on your time and attention, um, and you just you have to keep a, an organized shop um, for the safety of the kids, for the safety of yourself. You got to keep organized thoughts so you can answer questions and uh, you know deal with the little up and downs and, and non-woodworking problems that teenagers come up to you with, um, you know, and you just, you just kind of have to do it all. Um, so yeah, organization, stay organized. Yeah. Find a, find a system. Something I struggle with as well. Yeah. Uh, and so you already kind of answered this, but this is maybe more, more into it. How has the internet, internet influenced your work? I mean, obviously YouTube. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Uh, YouTube, um, uh, being able, not specifically internet, but um, you know, being able to connect with um, uh, uh, software companies and, and finding resources, like um, you know, with our, our CNC and um, um, and our laser, you know, just finding online resources to you know uh, churn out designs and and create stuff. Um, um, that's kind of the new direction that um, that we're trying to bring our um, 
our class into and, and classes like it is this um, um, technology-minded uh, approach, um, not just in the... Um, not just in the, the equipment that we use, but, you know, also using those uh, collaborative resources, um, you know, those, those online resources to, um, to further the craft. Oh, excellent. And a special bonus question. Ooh, bonus. Uh, we're here at Weekend with Wood. How is your Weekend with Wood going? What do you, what do you think? Uh, how's it going? Um, I've, I've never been to Iowa before. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a really nice place. Um, the, the weather right now is pretty good. Yeah, it's um, great. And the, we're the, indoors. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> um, everyone's been really nice. Everyone's been been super friendly, and and um, you know I, I've met a lot of people, both um, instructors and and uh, attendees, and and some of the Wood Magazine um, uh, staffers, and everyone is is willing to talk and share stories and um, and listen, and and uh, it's just been really great. Um, you know, I, I'd recommend it to anybody who's in 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 this field, uh, either as a hobby or professionally. It's um, it's a really great resource. Oh, excellent! So, where um, where can people find you? Do you have an online presence? You're a teacher, maybe? Uh, I don't know. no. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, it, Anything you want to plug? Um, not not really. Okay. I'm. We're we just kind of right now. We just kind of keep to ourselves, and you know, we my students they. You know, they, they put out a lot of stuff, but most of it, right now, it's mostly staying local. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, yeah, we're, we're just kind of, kind of doing our thing and, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe someday we'll have something to, something to shout out, but, um, you know, just mostly a, a thanks to everybody here at, at the weekend with Wood and, you know, all the, all the internet. Um, resources and personalities out there who have, you know, uh, uh, strive to bring this uh, great craft and trade and hobby and every everything else that woodworking is into in, into the what is this the 21st century officially to officially yeah the the new millennium yes yeah uh, and make it available to a, a whole new generation of of, uh, of individuals awesome well thank you very much thank you. The rest of the show is my interview with Tom McLaughlin and Terry Moore. But before I get into that, I just want to take a minute and explain that I recorded them after the final session of Weekend with Wood. We were in Tom's lecture room, and I only had my recorder and two microphones. So I gave them the microphones, and the three of us talked, but I wasn't directly on a mic. So what I've done is I've gone back and recorded myself asking the questions so I've done my best to kind of blend it in, but it's not great. And if you hear a little choppiness, that's why, because I had to re-record my questions. But this is the discussion we had. Hope you enjoy. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Tom McLaughlin from Canterbury, New Hampshire. And I'm Terry Moore from Wilmot, New Hampshire. All right. Question one. How did you get into woodworking? Well, for me, that's a real long roundabout story, but I came to this country from Wales in 1974 as part of a rock musical. I had gone up to London and I joined a rock musical called Lonesome Stone. Nobody's ever heard of it because it it was, yeah, but it was, uh, at the time, it was a Christian rock musical and um, it, it was like up with people with a Christian message. 
um, anyway, we we uh, were quite successful in London. We played in the Rainbow Theatre, where Eric Clapton recorded his live album. And uh, wow! So I know. So um, and then we came to do an American tour, and after our wild success in Europe, it was a flop in America. So we did a number of tours in the um, Midwest, which all came to an end, a screeching halt in Kansas City, Missouri. And then I went back to Newport, New Hampshire, which was the hometown of my uh, my wife, then wife. I'm long time divorced from her now. but So her father in Newport, New Hampshire owned 74 apartment units. He was the local slumlord, and uh, I found it, uh, while I was waiting for my green card to come through, I was working for him, helping him out in the apartments, which entailed doing carpentry jobs, which led to me building a kitchen for one of the apartments, and uh, I have no training in woodworking. I bought books, and I learned to do kitchen cabinets. Then a friend of mine gave me an issue of Fine Woodworking magazine, and the rest is history. I got into it when I was um, a kid, you know, in the basement. My my grandfather, we inherited some of his tools. I never met him, but um, I knew his tools. And I would mess around a lot with um, some of my early projects were uh, reforming and improving these old wire wheel spools, you know, the electricians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I'd make I'd I'd dress up these tables, put a new top on them, but I went to a I shocked my parents who are higher education, um, passionate about that. They wanted us to be out of the blue collar scene, but I, unlike my older siblings, went to vocational school, a trade school, and I got into the carpentry program, and just learned how much I loved it then. And it wasn't actually carpentry the first year. It was working with fine hand tools like like I do now, and I had no idea. So 13 years old, learning how to hand plane and carve perfect joints and all that, and then realizing I was pretty good at it. And, and then to learn how to turn on the lathe at that age was, was really when I got my first taste. But the the academic part soured and uh i started to feel like i was wasting time and then when the course curriculum went into carpentry more like building houses and away from finer furniture type work i lost interest and uh so transferred back to the other uh school went to college got a degree in math and it wasn't until i was in my mid 20s that I discovered, like Terry, I, I saw a fine woodworking magazine on the newsstand. I'm like, what? People are actually making a living doing that kind of work? You know, like, uh, how can that be? So I was fascinated with it because I it just rekindled that early love and um, started to devour all the, all the magazines and books I could find on it and ended up moving to uh, North Carolina with my wife and took the plunge to go full-time with a... Uh, a master craftsman. I apprenticed with him, Pugmore, P.A. Pugmore, uh, in um, Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And I spent about three years with him in his shop learning, you know, very um, traditional 18th century furniture design and craftsmanship, and then start on my own. 
Question two, what is your favorite tool? My favorite tool would have to be the hand plane. I have a, a large collection of Stanley Baileys going from a number two up to a number eight. And, uh, and I restored them all when I was uh, maybe in my 30s. I'd collect these things. And then I started to collect some of the English hand planes, the Norris planes, which were quite common before the war in, in England. And every apprentice that served upon graduation after a four-year apprenticeship, they would receive a Norris jointer plane and a Norris smoothing plane. And now uh, my brother was able to, uh, my, my whole family still lives in Wales, so I'd go over and visit, and my brother would put an ad in the paper looking for antique tools, and sure enough, uh, I was able to pick up some nice Norris planes. And then, of course, Lee Nielsen came out, so I have a, I don't use anything other than Lee Nielsen tools now. I think I'm pretty sold on Lee Nielsen tools. <laughs> uh, sentimentally, I think my favorite tool is a number seven Stanley Bailey hand plane that belonged and was bought by my grandfather, who I never met. He was a police officer who was killed on duty a couple oh, years before I, didn't know that. I was born. And I got his hand plane. He was really, he was a good, fine, like, home craftsman mm. and the he didn't even get to use it enough the label was still in the handle you know, oh, no so it's way. beautiful but i have that the place of honor right on the top of the tool cabinet it's sweet like uh it, up there the profile because you know you don't use those number sevens very not often. very often <laughs> but it, it it still works beautifully but practically i would say um i'm simple i guess i, I love the how effective and useful a card scraper is i just so much you can do with it to refine and quickly uh get to the sanding and reducing sanding so i would have to say the card scraper really question three who has influenced you the most in my early days because i'm completely self-taught i i envy tom for having served that apprenticeship and David Lamb in New Hampshire, another fine furniture master. He served an apprentice with an uh, apprenticeship with an old Spanish cabinet maker. Um, I envy them because I, I really had to learn everything I know from books and from extreme trial and error. I would set about, uh, uh, building a cherry desk. I remember building a cherry desk and, disastrously ruined some prime cherry boards. But um, I forget the question now. (laughs) Early days, because I learned from reading everything. Early days, um, there was an ad in that first issue of Fine Woodworking Magazine that my friend gave to me. The ad was for, uh, for a James Cranov book. So my early influence was James Cranov, and I almost um, went out to school when he came to California and opened up Cranov School. I almost went out there. I'm kind of glad I didn't. I, I would have ended up a Cranovian Krino- clone because uh, he his influence was so strong 
that you can immediately tell in these little details, um, oh, that guy obviously was inspired by James Cranov. So Cranov was the first influence, and then an English uh, furniture maker named Edward Barnsley, um, and then later um, Emile Ruhlman, a French furniture designer from 1920s Paris, France. Um, so those three, if you look at my work, you'll be able to see slight details that go back to those early three influences. Mine, um, it's funny, I have a similar influence with um, James Cranoff uh, reading his book, uh, Cabinet Maker's Notebook, when I was just getting into it. And it was so compelling, you know, that uh, someone could work at that level. It was almost like a spiritual experience for him to make a beautiful piece of furniture. And uh, but once I got into it, of course, Pugmore was the strongest influence on me and into uh, how to work. And that was mostly 18th century furniture, which I enjoyed. But I always had an itch to like do my own thing. And so that was a great foundation in like classical training to then apply it to contemporary design, which. When I got with the New Hampshire Furniture Masters, there was uh, Jerry Osgood was a strong influence, I think, in the group with the fluid curves and all that. And I think there's so much cross-pollination. I think yeah. over time, it's hard to say one guy, but just being in that environment was it's such a rich place to look around and see what beautiful pieces those guys are making. I think when we formed the the, the Furniture Masters, um, what we found was um, there were 12 of us original. Well, there were four of us started off. But the first exhibition, there were 12 people. And then by the like the fifth or sixth year, there were maybe 20 uh, craftsmen uh, exhibiting. And what we noticed in our exhibits were subconsciously we were influencing one another we one of us would use a contrasting wood cock bead on the bottom of an apron of a table and then the next year someone else would use that and little details so uh, it became we were talking about this it became sort of the influential school of the new hampshire furniture masters mm-hmm. it's yeah. ironic but uh, we kind of influenced one another in that group mm-hmm. It's an organization whose name I've heard tons of times, but do you want to describe exactly what it is? We started it. Um, it's now um, almost 20 years old now. Yeah, it's the 20th year. It's the 20th year right now. We met together. We would never have thought as woodworkers, we are we one-man shops. We're in our own studios and making whatever we can and, and exhibiting them and hoping for sales. But this businessman from Concord, New Hampshire, he's a vice president with Merrill Lynch. He said, look, I've been talking to a lot of people and we New Hampshire is known for um, it's craftspeople. It's one of our benefits. And instead of you making your furniture and trying to sell it in Boston or New York, why don't we form an organization, a trade organization, um, to bring people from the city 
to make it a destination for fine furniture. So we began to meet, and it, th- these meetings once a month for lunch lasted uh, for over a year before our first exhibition. Was he a furniture maker or a craftsman of any sort or just a businessman? No, he was not a furniture maker at all. He's still involved. What would you have to say about Tony? He's a stockbroker, but he is forever like the most optimistic. Energizer bunny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had us believing that, you know, every every year we would have a catalog. So because it's so hard to produce a body of work to show in a gallery, the genius of the original idea was for us each to produce at least one really nice commissioned or original piece that could be shown in a in a gallery and would also be photographed really well to be included in a fine catalog that would catalog our work over the years. So that began in what, like 97, 96, 97. So Somewhere there's a around catalog there. for every year. And it's a, it's become a beautiful um, archive of some of the most, the best work of the furniture masters. But we would, uh, those pieces would also then be put up for auction at this great event. So it, it created a buzz around the auction. And Tony was so good at making us think that we had, we were going to have runaway bidding. And then so, so we had this eternal optimism that we were, we were in the, the best possible place for a furniture maker to make a living at it. And it did in all fairness, um, uh, everything that was in that auction, two thirds of it sold. And you can trace that back from the very first auction to the very last auction that we've had, two-thirds of what comes up on the auction block will sell mm-hmm. above the reserve price slightly, not too much, <laughs> and uh, and then a third of it won't get sold. But what it does then is generate, if, if there are three people bidding on it, they come up to you afterwards and say, well, I missed it. And and then we take over and say, but we could build you another one. <laughs> That's right. And it generated commissions and it generated sales. And it did become a pretty successful trade organization. That's excellent. And to get back to the original questions, what was your biggest stumbling block and could it have been avoided? Well, I got to think about that for a second. <laughs> stumbling block for me was the mistakes that I would make. Um, For instance, not only did I screw up some very high-quality figured cherry when I tried to do my first desk, fall front desk, with hand-cut dovetails um, after the school of James Cranov, um, and it ended up being a pile of kindling, literally, uh, and then I started making acoustic guitars um, on the side of something else I've continued to do. And I, re- I tried resawing some really nice Brazilian rosewood. And I failed miserably and ruined some beautiful um, Brazilian rosewood. So the stumbling block was my own stupidity or lack of experience. But then it became um, an asset if you can turn around and learn from that deep mistake that cost you precious, irreplaceable material, time, and tools. Um, 
the stumbling block is gone and it becomes an opportunity then to turn that around and learn from that mistake. I think my stumbling block was less to do with uh, the technical pieces because I made too many mistakes to focus on one, (laughs) but um, it was more on the business side, just getting going and knowing how to make a living at it and uh, knowing how to price projects, how long things would take, and then say the big number with confidence, you know, in a proposal. And that just took me so long. And and Terry and I were talking about it uh, on the way over here that so much of our challenge is almost from our history of growing up, you know, blue collar, you know, our, and not having just the insight into the world of of our patrons, you know, that they they don't think of money the same way and that we could have more confidence to value our work as it truly should be. So I was greatly aided by becoming part of the New Hampshire Furniture Masters and benefiting from the the price increase and and just being along guys with like uh, David Lamb, who is so much better and more natural at presenting proposals that we just almost blanch. We go, oh my gosh, you're asking that much and but he's right, you know, and in his confidence to say the big number, to recognize it as having really solid value and be in that world of art, it lifted all of us to have that same courage and to bring our numbers up higher. So I still think we underprice things from a lack of confidence in who we are and absolutely. what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, David is working on an $80,000 piece right now. For, for the next Furniture Master exp, ex, exhibition. He found a patron that'll pay that. And, um, and if, and the most expensive thing I've ever made and sold is 20,000. And if someone comes to me, they re- literally, if they knew how to work me, they could get a bargain <laughs> price for a fabulous heirloom quality piece of furniture. And I'm stupid enough to go along with it <laughs> thinking, Oh, good. They want a piece of my work. <laughs> On that note, I heard a I heard Wendell Castle speak last winter. He was at an exhibit at the Museum of Art and Design. And he talked about how he's a sculptor. And he realized that he could make more money as a sculptor in the world of furniture than as a sculptor in the world of sculpture. <laughs> um, but he was talking about pricing and... He had these stools that were on display, and they were some of the first pieces he made. And they're, they're curvy, the way yeah. you think of a castle piece. And he had one in his attic that this was 10, 15 years ago. So he was certainly a well-known person like that. And this was a stool that in the 70s he was trying to sell for hundreds of dollars. And it was just sitting in his attic for decades. A woman called and wanted a piece, and he offered it to her for $100,000. And she went like that. Exactly. Shh. Yeah. It's a mindset. It's having, you know, the guts to say it and... And, you know, this with art, it's not billable in hours and materials. There's, uh, there's this, this uh, added value that comes from your life, your engagement with the craft. And, and we need to factor that in more than we do. Because yeah. so often we're thinking, oh, it's, I mean, it's going to take me this many hours at this. And I get this, this much per work. hour, but it, it's more, it has to be more than yeah. that. Yep. Um, 
I have repeat clients that come back and they've been with me for 25 years and they keep coming back ordering a piece a year. And it just struck me um, uh, that the guy wanted a table and I thought, well, I can do that for about $10,000 and I'd make, uh, that would pay me my shop time. And it was actually my girlfriend that said, well, why don't you, why don't you charge him 12? And I said, okay, I'll see. <laughs> so, I mean, but if it wasn't for Ginny suggesting, why don't you charge him 12,000 instead of 10,000? If he still wants it, he'll pay it. And I thought, okay. And sure enough, when I told him the price, he said, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. So, <laughs> But what's wrong with me? <laughs> I know. You think how much we've left on the table. I know. We've been so conservative. Yeah. All right, guys. The last question. How has the internet influenced your woodworking? Only immediately after I put up my website and another uh, New Hampshire organization, the Guild of New Hampshire Woodworkers, I helped form that too, um, there's a guy, a retired executive, and he's great with high-tech stuff. Uh, he built David Lamb's uh, website. He built my website. He built Bill Thomas's website. Um, right after I put my website up, and there were, it's still not finished. There's still gobbledygook text on there um, that I need to fill in the blank spots. But some New York, Fifth Avenue New York woman was looking for a desk. Um, maybe she had Googled in, um, art deco desks. Somehow my rosewood desk came up and she called me up and said, um, I'd, I'd like to order one of these desks. How much? And, um, I told the story in class and I said 20,000, but it was actually 15,000. I remember now it was 20,000 when I put the, the the top layers, the Carlton House desk. I, I improved the design. But anyway, I sold her a $15,000 desk plus um, a nest of a high hall table. Nested under that was a butterfly top dining table that you pulled out. The, the apron expanded and then... You turned the top over and it was all rosewood veneer. Under that was one long rosewood bench. So it was three pieces of furniture. So I ended up about $45,000 worth. But since that first order on the internet, it's like someone turned a switch off. I've got nothing. (laughs) Uh, For my furniture, I hadn't felt a lot of effect from the internet other than referencing my website and people would come and look at your portfolio and whatever. But I've just always felt like the world that we live in with high-end furniture, the clients want to purchase it. It, It's personal. And you tend to have a relationship with them. They meet you. They're buying you as much as the piece. So it's just not impersonal, like looking at a photo on the internet. That's usually after that we've met or something. And it's just it reinforces that we are, you know, legitimately craftsmen and we've been doing it for some amount of time. But on the teaching side, it's been very, very uh, influential to me and, and a great help because in recent years, um, 
I've been always offering classes in the shop, but I'm starting to do more online and um, change the brand. I've always been McLaughlin Woods, you know, for the classes and the, and the furniture, but now we've got the name of Epic Woodworking. So that's our website. And we're on that platform. I'm now um, offering videos and um, I, I post videos on YouTube through, you can link through them through the website and we're doing live streaming now. It's just amazing the time we live in where we've got this technology and to, to scale it. It's, it's really interesting because now I'm teaching classes to a camera, but it could be, it doesn't matter how many people are out there. I'm still doing the same thing I would do whether there was five or eight, 10 people in my shop. But it's it's amazing the reach and influence you can have now with technology. So in that way, I'm trying to pass on this like virtual apprenticeship of the same experience I had with Pugmore and, and bring in other guys. I want to get to the point where I'm visiting guys' shops, and Terry will be involved in it too. But um, So it's going to be a big part of mine because I've actually recently made the decision to uh, back off of taking accepting custom commissions to build the Epic Woodworking website. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Yeah, it's going well. I still feel, and this is one of the things that we were talking about on this trip out. That uh, and I had and Tom reminded me that um, I had I had uh, every year in the Furniture Masters uh, catalog, along with a piece, we had to have a quote. And a lot of people would use, you know, uh, some esoteric philosophy, you know, philosophical, philosophical quote, sorry. Um, and, uh, because I'm untrained and self-taught and the son of a coal miner who worked in the mine with his father, um, I still feel like I've won the lottery. I, I ha- I've, I've discovered that I have a natural ability to design and craft fine pieces of work. After I've learned by trial and error, but um, and my quote in the, that catalog was something like, I'm still waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, you shouldn't be doing this. You're not qualified whatsoever. You did not go to college. You did not serve an apprenticeship. You have no right to be here calling yourself a furniture master. And uh, I still wait for that. Every piece I build and every price I give a client I have that is forever in the back of my head. Should you really be charging that much? Mm. Yes. yes. That's your coal miner dad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you both very much for sitting down and talking with me. Before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to promote, such as your website or anything else? Well, I'm 63, almost 64. If someone out there is listening to this and they want to order a piece, they better hurry up. I don't think I've got too much longer. <laughs> you can reach me at uh, terrymorefurniture.com. And mine is uh, the Epic Woodworking site, epicwoodworking.com. And also, um, you know, on it's Instagram and, and YouTube. But that's really the epicwoodworking.com site uh, is where – I'm really focusing the attention. So if anyone wants to stay connected, uh, get notified first of recent videos posted or new classes, whether they're live streaming or 
uh, ones that we're doing in the shop in Canterbury. It's just a, it's a great place to come take a class. Terry teaches there as well. Um, they can register, go to the mailing list and there's a, I mean the, the website you can get on the mailing list. And, um, I also have, when you sign up for the mailing list, that wait, more. there's more. <laughs> <laughs> when you sign up for the mailing list, you get an article that I wrote of my top 10 favorite tools. I'll correct my website. Um, I misquoted it. It's Terry Moore, one word, dash furniture.com.